If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to take them and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, where on this second Sunday of Advent, we have the blessing of considering verses 1 to 9. Isaiah chapter 42, there it is. How you doing? Merry Christmas. Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. I don't know why we sing those songs only at Christmas time. We should sing them more often. Amen. Okay, I just want to throw that in. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Please follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out from the prison, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Almighty God, given to us for our good. Let's pray as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Father, we do come before you and confess that you are the one who has stretched out the heavens. You are the one who has laid bare the earth. You're the one who gives life and breath to every creature on this globe. God, you sustain us even now. We're not for your mercy, God, and your common grace. None of us would be standing upright and breathing at this point. You are beyond merciful and good and gracious and kind. And Father, we would ask now very humbly, but also very boldly, that you would please help us to hear your word with ears of faith. That you would open our hearts and minds, God, that we would believe the things that are true, having heard them from the very word of God. Remind us, Father, that when we listen to the scriptures read and proclaimed and declared and preached, we are hearing your voice to us. We are receiving the truth of God. Lord, help us to be humble, help us to be repentant, help us to believe. Father, please give me grace to say things that are true and faithful and accurate to your word. Help us all, Father, to hold fast to the truth. And we pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Christmas carol we sang a moment ago, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that Christmas carol is a fitting introduction to today's passage. That song, as you, you heard when we sang, That song is really a prayer. It's a prayer. As the the first stanza 
of the, of the song pleads for Emmanuel to come and ransom captive Israel. And that's the, that idea of captivity is the theme of this passage. That idea of captivity is what introduces us to this text. As we come to Isaiah 42, the people of God face the reality of exile. You may remember from last week, the Babylonians are coming, Isaiah warned, and the people of Judah will be taken into captivity. They'll be taken out of the land. It's a horrible fate, but it's also deserved. It's deserved. Remember, the people face exile because quite simply, they have neglected God. They've ignored His Word. They've broken His covenant. And so the Lord will now give them what they have pursued. They chased a life without God, and now that's what they will get. They'll reap a life without the Lord. Understand then that as Isaiah 42 opens, God's people struggle against two very powerful temptations, both of which will erode their faith. On the one hand, there is the temptation to fear. Think about it, friends. To Isaiah's audience, the future likely appears very uncertain, even fearful. Yes, they've heard the promises of God through the prophets like Isaiah, but do those promises hold true if we're in exile? That's what they would be thinking. If we go into captivity, is the Word of God held captive too? You see, there's this temptation to fear. And at the same time, that fear feeds the temptation to idolatry. To idolatry. Again, you have to think about it from the perspective of Isaiah's audience if exile is coming for Israel, then perhaps we have been following the wrong God. If Babylon conquers Jerusalem, then shouldn't we trust in Babylon's God? I hope you're getting a sense of the situation. The circumstances are fearful, and that fear fuels the greatest temptation of all. The temptation to trust in something other than God. But into this fearful situation, God does something rather remarkable. He doesn't leave His people on their own, which is honestly what they deserve. No, God speaks a word of hope to His wayward people. Isaiah 42 introduces us to the servant of the Lord. You see it there in verse 1. Behold my servant, God says. And this servant, friends, is the divine remedy to what plagues God's people. The servant will do what the nation cannot. He will deliver God's weak and frail people. And in doing so, the servant will also expose idolatry as a dead-end scheme, proving once and for all that God alone determines the course of history. You see, the servant of the Lord, there in verse 1, is the remedy for the wayward and rebellious people of God. The servant drives out fear, and he calls God's people again to faith. And that gets to the heart of this passage for us, friends. Times and culture have changed, but the temptations facing Isaiah's audience are the same temptations facing God's people today. Who among us has not struggled with fear in the face of an uncertain future? I'm often afraid. It's common for every believer, really, to have fear fight against faith. And then think of how easy it is in those fearful times to give our trust to other saviors. Whether it be having the right job, or building a growing family, or being in good health, 
or having financial stability or living in the right neighborhood. If I just have all those things, then I'll be saved. I'll be safe. I'll be delivered from all of my fears. You see, idolatry is not merely an ancient problem, friends. We may not be tempted to bow down to little carved statues, but we're surrounded by idols every day. Ours are just better disguised and perhaps more respectable. So it's the same temptations facing us that face the people of God in Isaiah's day. And all of that to say, brothers and sisters, we need to hear God's word in Isaiah 42. This is thousands of years ago, and we need to listen to it. We need to understand how the servant of the Lord delivers God's people from captivity to sin and fear and idolatry. And most importantly, we need to see how the servant of Isaiah 42 has been revealed as none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through Him you see that Isaiah's good news comes to pass. So that's what I want us to do this morning is look more closely at this servant whom God promises to raise up in order that we might find our faith strengthened. Specifically, I want to consider the servant's calling, his character, his commission, and his confidence. And as we consider those four things, my hope is that by looking to Christ, we will find our hearts encouraged to trust in God alone. So let's begin in verse 1 with the servant's calling. The servant's calling. From the start, it's clear that the servant has a unique relationship with God. Notice how God presents him in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Friends, what should get our attention here is the language of divine appointment. The servant does not choose his position, but is rather chosen by God. You see, this is how God spoke of Abraham and Moses and David. The language is the same. Each of those men was a uniquely appointed servant called to fulfill a specific role. And that's the case here in Isaiah 42. The servant of the Lord has a divine appointment, verse 1 says. He's been chosen by God. But you'll also notice that the servant comes with divine empowerment as well. Notice how God says He will put His Spirit upon the servant. You see, this is what sets the servant apart. If you look back to chapter 41, you would find God describing the idols of this world as nothing more than empty winds. You can see it there in verse 29 of Isaiah 41, if you just look one verse up. The idols of this world are nothing but empty winds. They have no power. They're a bunch of hot air, in other words. But not so the servant of the Lord. God's servant is empowered by the Spirit. The very breath of God, you might say. He has divine empowerment. This is far different than what the idols of this world can offer. Every other so-called God is an abomination to the Lord. An assault on His glory. But not so God's servant. The servant embodies the very pleasure of God. Which means he has divine approval. But then it all culminates in the servant's divine mandate. Notice the end of the verse. Why does God appoint and empower and delight in this servant? So that the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. That's his mandate. Justice. Now understand, friends, justice here is more than a legal term. The servant's job is not simply to enforce laws or to right wrongs. He will do those things for sure, but he will do so much more. Justice here has a global 
sense. The servant will set the entire creation right. He will call all people to live in light of the truth that there is only one God, the Lord God Almighty. You see, that's the, that's the servant's divine mandate. He's an agent of God's Word. He reveals God's truth in God's world so that people will see their need to be reconciled to the one true and living God. That's what justice means. It means right relationship with God that then flows out in right relationships with others. That's the servant's mandate then. So when you put all these pieces together here in the first verse, you begin to see that the servant of the Lord must be more than the nation of Israel. Israel is sometimes called God's servant, but here in chapter 42, the servant must be more than the nation of Israel. The servant must be none other than the Messiah. You think about it, divine appointment, empowerment, approval, mandate... This must be the anointed one. This must be the rose that blooms in Bethlehem. This must be the the shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11. This must be the branch of King David, Isaiah chapter 9. This must be the, the son that is coming to us. This must be the Messiah, the promised heir of David, the king who will reign over the kingdom of God. And listen, friends, this is not my attempt to read Jesus back into the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament itself urges us to see this connection. Matthew chapter 12 is one clear place where Isaiah 42 is specifically connected with Jesus. But I want you to think about Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' baptism. One of the most important moments in Jesus' life that we tend to overlook. Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3. What happens as Jesus comes up out of the water in the Jordan River? What happens? The sky splits, the Spirit descends upon Him, and the Father's voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Appointment, empowerment, approval. You see, it's an echo of Isaiah 42 there on the banks of the Jordan River. It's an echo of what Isaiah promised. The Lord Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He is the one in whom the Father delights. And it's through Him that God will bring justice Upon the earth, not simply the justice of laws enforced, but the perfect order of life lived under God's good word. He is the servant of the Lord. So we're only one verse in, friends, and already I hope you see the confidence God's people have as we face the future. Here we have God speaking in Isaiah of his servant, and then we see God acting in Matthew to reveal his servant in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the progression? What God says, he then does. What he speaks, he fulfills. What he predicts, he accomplishes. The future is in God's hands, in other words. The future is in God's hands. And perhaps nowhere do we see that so clearly as in the coming of Jesus Christ. So at the most basic level, friends, the believer's confidence for the future is found right here in the Lord Jesus. Listen, I don't mean to sound trite, but the Lord Jesus does truly answer the fear that can so easily afflict our hearts. If there's nothing else you take away from this morning, I pray that you'll be encouraged by this, that simply by His coming to earth, the Lord Jesus is assuring you that the future is secure for the people of God. It's not up in the air. It's not uncertain. It's not a gamble. It's not a hope. It's not a wish. It's a certainty. Because the Lord Jesus has come. 
So I cannot tell you every circumstance will turn out okay in your life. I cannot tell you that every tragedy will be avoided. I can't tell you that all of your days will be merry and bright. But I can remind you of this, brothers and sisters. When God speaks, He does it. What God says, He accomplishes. What God predicts, He fulfills. He calls forth the servant in Isaiah. And in the fullness of time, God raised up that servant in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 1, the servant's calling. We have to keep going. As we move to verses 2 through 4, we find the second feature, the servant's character. The servant's character. This is my favorite part. God now gives us more insight into what His servant will be like. And considering the servant's grand calling, we might expect him to be marked with pomp and power. You know the kind of leader who has no time for people who slow down his march of progress. He's an important person. He's got important things to do. Not going to be slowed down by all you weak people. That's what we might expect, but we would be wrong. God's servant, as we see here in these verses, has an entirely different character. Notice it with me. Perhaps most importantly, the servant of the Lord will be humble. Verse 2 says he will not cry out in the streets or lift up his voice. In other words, the servant of the Lord will not be a self-promoter. He's not someone who seeks out the limelight. He's not trying to maximize his platform or build a brand. No, the servant of the Lord will be quiet. He's content to carry out his ministry outside the spotlight, perhaps even on the margins that the world tends to overlook. That's the servant's character. He's humble. The description continues in verse 3. The servant of the Lord is gentle. God says the servant will not break a bruised reed or quench the faintly burning wick. In Isaiah's day, reeds were used for support in building or perhaps in mobility. Reeds were used for support. But a bruised reed or or a bent reed was useless. It it wouldn't provide you any support. Same thing for a, a dimly burning candle. It doesn't give you much light and it certainly doesn't give you any heat. So why not just snuff it out? It's wasting oxygen. But that's not how the servant of the Lord treats God's people. He doesn't break the bruised and he doesn't quench the faint. In other words, friends, there's no one too weak for the servant to help. And there's no one too far gone for the servant to revive. He's gentle, verse 3 says. Then notice the final piece of the servant's character, verse 4. He's strong. He's strong. Look again at the verse Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now there's a play on words here that captures the servant's character. He will not break the bruised reed, verse 3, but at the same time, the servant will not be bruised or broken himself. It's the same word from verse 3 to verse 4. He's not going to break the bruised, but he's not going to be bruised either. So the servant of the Lord is gentle enough to meet people in their weakness, and yet at the same time, he's strong enough to overcome their weakness as well. He doesn't burn out, you see? And he doesn't break. So try, if you can, to imagine a leader who is strong enough to put the whole world right, and yet at the same time, gentle enough to reach the hurting, the broken, and the weak. Strong enough to make the world good and glorious again. Gentle enough to reach those who are barely holding on. 
Try to imagine a leader who does both of those things. It almost sounds too good to be true, right? Almost like a fairy tale. Except it's no fairy tale, brothers and sisters. Isaiah 42 is a preview of the Messiah who would be born some centuries later. Like no one else can, the Lord Jesus embodies the character of the servant. I just want you to think for a minute about verse 3 in the context of the Lord Jesus. I don't know that there's a more precious verse in all of the Old Testament than verse 3 when you think about it in connection with the Lord Jesus. So let's just do that for a second. Jesus is humble. He chooses to lay aside His glory in order to come to this earth to save His people. And while on earth, He ministered in an out-of-the-way part of the world, discipling fishermen of all people, and calling tax collectors, and befriending sinners, and associating with the lowly, and calling the outcast. He's humble. The Lord Jesus is gentle. He patiently meets His people in their weakness. Think of that time the woman snuck up behind Jesus in order to touch the hem of His garment, Mark chapter 5. Do you remember that? She'd been suffering with the issue of blood for 12 years, so she's ceremonially unclean. She's not allowed to touch Jesus, and she sneaks up behind Him and she touches Him. And Jesus turns around and says, Who touched me? And she comes trembling before, her, before him. What did he do? Did he rebuke her? Did he break her bruised faith? No, he commended her and received her with tenderness. He's gentle. Or think about the father that comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, begging for Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says to him, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Does Jesus snuff out his faintly burning faith? No. No, he heals the man's son and commends the father even for his weak faith. You see, the Lord Jesus is gentle, brothers and sisters. He's gentle. He won't break you when you come to him in your need. One of the worst and most insidious lies that Satan tells the people of God is that you're too weak for the Lord to help. You're too far gone to be brought back. You're not burning bright enough for the Lord to revive. Don't believe him. Jesus won't break you when you come to Him in need, and He won't snuff you out when your faith is little more than an ember. He's gentle. At the same time, the Lord Jesus is unimaginably strong. Unimaginably strong. Isaiah said that the servant of the Lord would not grow faint or be discouraged. He would not be kept from fulfilling His mission to make the world right. And nearly every single story in the Gospels presents Jesus as displaying this kind of strength unimaginably strong. When tempted by the devil himself, Jesus stood firm on the word of God. When opposed by the religious leaders, Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die. And when racked with agony in the garden as he's praying and sweat like great drops of blood is coming off of his brow, Jesus doesn't avoid the cup of God's judgment, but he prays, no, Father, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is unimaginably strong. You see, it's no fairy tale, brothers and sisters. It's no fairy tale. It's the best news in all the world. The Lord Jesus is the servant of the Lord, the one whom God has provided to care for and deliver His people. He's humble. He's gentle. He's strong. And that means that He stands ready to receive you today. He stands ready to welcome you in faith. Even if your faith is weak and feels like it's fading, the Lord Jesus will not snuff you out. Even if your faith is broken, He will not finish you off. He will receive you. 
And the way you honor him, friends, is by coming to him in faith. The great pastor, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, preached a wonderful sermon called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. And the whole point of the sermon, through all of Mr. Edwards' very long sentences, the whole point of the sermon is that the way you glorify God is by being honest in your dependence upon Him. So do you want to honor the humble and gentle and unimaginably strong Jesus? Then come to Him in faith. Cast yourself upon Him in faith. That's how you make His glory known. His power is made perfect in weakness. His glory is revealed in frailty. We sang it in all the songs Today, the servant's character, friends, is calling you to trust him. That's number two. Let's look at the third feature of the passage, the servant's commission. We've considered his calling and his character. Let's look at the servant's commission. What is he coming to do? Beginning in verse 5, God describes in more detail what the servant's job will be. It begins with the declaration of God's character in verse 5, where we're reminded that God is the creator of all things. You see that there in verse 5? Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth and what comes from it. God is the creator of all things. Whenever you're writing a sermon, there's always about like 30 minutes worth of stuff that you have to cut out. And I've got a whole section here on the fact that the doctrine of creation is absolutely essential to being a Christian. But I had to cut that out. So if you want to talk about it later, you can come find me. Verse 5, God says he's the creator of all things. I want us to note, though, the servant's mission in verses 6 and 7. Notice again what God says to his servant. Verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. There's a lot to unpack in those verses. And we're not going to cover everything that we could say. For example, we could talk for a long time about what it means that the servant of the Lord is the covenant mediator for the people of God. How he both represents them and fulfills the covenant. And we could talk about how that stretches on until we get to the new covenant in the Lord Jesus. There's a lot that we could unpack. But we're going to focus this morning on the idea of light in verse 6. You see it there. I'll give you as a light for the nations. Now what does light mean at this point? What does that mean? Well, If we think about how light functions in the Bible... It typically represents the knowledge of God. Think about Psalm 119, verse 105, where God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It reveals God to us. Or Psalm 36, verse 9, where David says to God, in your light do we see light. The point being that God is the starting place of all true knowledge. In your light do we see light. Or go ahead to the New Testament and the Apostle John in his first epistle where he says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Again, light is connected with God Himself. Light then in the Bible is an image for the knowledge of God. It's an image for the knowledge of God that shines out from God's person and reveals the truth to people. And that helps us understand the servant's mission here in Isaiah 42. What does the servant come to do? Well, fundamentally, he comes to reveal God. He comes to make God known. You see, this is the ultimate deliverance that God's people need. This is the answer to both exile and idolatry. Remember, friends, even here in the Old Testament, the physical exile in Babylon, remember, Babylonians are going to come, they're going to take the people out of the land. That physical exile is the picture of a much greater exile, the exile of sin. Humanity is in captivity 
the Bible says, imprisoned in sin's darkness. And that darkness is so deep, it's like a dungeon that imprisons us and keeps us from seeing the life-giving glory of God. That's why the servant's mission in verse 7 is described like a prison break. Because in a real sense, that's what the servant comes to do. He delivers people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he does so by shining the light of the glory of God into their captive hearts so that they come alive and follow him out of the prison. Friends, this is a mission we couldn't accomplish on our own. Just like Judah could not deliver herself from Babylon, so also sinners cannot deliver themselves from sin's darkness. We need light to break in from the outside. We need a deliverer who tears apart sin's shackles and brings us out to the new life of light in the presence of God. So light here is the knowledge of God that delivers people from captivity. And as you go to the New Testament, you find that this passage from Isaiah 42 forms the backdrop to much of Jesus' ministry. Think about Jesus' miraculous healing of the man born blind in Mark chapter 8. What is that miracle about? It's certainly about meeting that man's need, but it's also a spiritual parable, as it were, revealing to us that Jesus is the servant of the Lord who comes to break sin's blindness. Or think about Jesus' statement in John chapter 8 that He is the light of the world. Why does He choose that image? To make clear that He is the only way for mankind to see and then embrace by faith the truth of who God is. He's the light of the world. It's not limited to Jesus' ministry. Think about the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, there it is, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we see that glory, brothers and sisters? The Apostle Paul tells us, in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, what I'm, what I'm trying to get us to see here is that there's this thread of God's faithfulness that begins in places like Isaiah 42 and then stretches on until it reaches the flesh and blood person of Jesus Christ. There's this thread of God's faithfulness. This is important. And it's something that perhaps I haven't always done a very good job of explaining to you. So I'm going to try again. When we talk about the faithfulness of God, we're not merely speaking of one of God's attributes as though His faithfulness were simply a personality trait or a characteristic of how He acts, or an account of His track record of all the things done in the past. Now, to be sure, faithfulness is one of God's attributes, and it does mark His character. But God's faithfulness is so much more than a mere attribute. God's faithfulness is the overflow of Himself. God's faithfulness is His unfailing commitment to be God. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself. Do you see it? He is committed to being God. And because He's committed to being God, He is faithful forevermore. It's not merely an attribute. It's the overflow of who He is. It's the expression of His Godness, in other words. And nowhere is this faithfulness, this overflow of God's godness, nowhere is that faithfulness seen more clearly than in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's the flesh and blood assurance that God will not be unfaithful to Himself. He's the flesh and blood reality that God will not change. You see, in giving us the Son of God, the Father has given us nothing less than Himself. He has given us Himself, the invisible God in flesh and blood. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, Jesus says in John 10. So to receive Jesus Christ by faith is to receive the Father's absolute, unchanging, flesh and blood assurance that He is for you and faithful to the end. Again, this is what Isaiah is getting at in chapter 42. The servant of the Lord will bring light. We just saw that light represents the knowledge of God. So the servant of the Lord will bring the knowledge of God. And when we see Jesus Christ, that is what we receive. We receive by faith the knowledge of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4. That is, we are assured that God is faithful, unchanging, never failing, and merciful to the end. Friends, I'm struggling to find words to express what a profound grace this is. I'm at a loss as to how to unfold for us what is surely the most astoundingly wonderful news in all of the world. God promised through His servant to give light to those in darkness. And in the gospel, God has kept that promise by giving us what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. I pray that you see it today. God, please help us to see it to see Christ and to believe what Isaiah foretold, Jesus Christ fulfills. Praise God. That's number three. Let's look at the final feature of the text. We've seen the servant's calling, his character, his commission. Let's look in verses 8 and 9 at the servant's confidence. The servant's confidence. You'll remember at the outset of the sermon, we said one of the temptations facing Isaiah's audience was idolatry. If Babylon conquers Jerusalem, shouldn't we just trust in Babylon's God? That was the pressing issue in Isaiah's day. So here at the conclusion of the passage about the servant of the Lord, God delivers a decisive blow against idolatry. In just two verses, verses 8 and 9, God crushes idols under the weight of His glory. Notice what God says, verse 8. I am the Lord that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, that might sound kind of self-evident for God to say, I am the Lord that is my name. Right? You're like, yeah, we know that, God. Right? But it's more than a bare reminder. God's name, the Lord, is His covenant name. It's the name by which He was known to his people. You may recall that this was the name by which God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. I am who I am, God said. He's the Lord. And that makes this more than a name. God's covenant name, the Lord, is a declaration of his glory. It's a statement of existence. Who is God? Well, he is the God who is, period. He is the God who is, and His being is found only in Himself. You see, verse 8 is God putting all the idols of this world on notice. Every other so-called God is dependent upon its people, but not so the Lord. He is the God who is. That is His name. He exists in Himself. And there's no clearer demonstration of God's deity than His control of history. Look at verse 9. This is the pinnacle of God's 
crushing idols. Verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. If you look back to chapter 41, which you might have read if you're following the Advent reading plan, if you look back to chapter 41, you'll find God mocking the idols of this world on precisely this point. Yes, God mocks things. And he mocks idolatry, most of all, because it's foolish. He mocks the idols of this world because they can't do anything. The so-called gods of this world can't tell the end from the beginning. They can do nothing because they are nothing. But God, on the other hand, God not only knows the end from the beginning, He determines it. That's the point of verse 9. What God declared in the past... He has brought to fulfillment. And what will come in the future, God tells His people before it happens. You see, that's the confidence that upholds the servant of the Lord. He is not the servant of some lifeless idol. He is the servant of the one true and living God. The God who determines the end from the beginning. The one who not only sees the future, but brings it to pass according to His Word. He alone is God. Because he alone knows the end from the beginning. And that's the final application. The final word to us, friends. Our idols today may look different than Isaiah's time, but they are as powerless as the ones God destroys here in verse 9. There's nothing in this world that can finally deliver us safe and sound into the future. There's no career lucrative enough. No neighborhood safe enough. No medicinal plan good enough. There's nothing in this world that can protect us and deliver us finally and safely into the future. So even though our idols today are sleek and sophisticated, they're nothing but empty wind, as Isaiah says. They can't save you. But the Lord God is worthy of your trust. That's perhaps the simplest way to express the message of this, of this passage. People always say they want practical preaching. Give us practical preaching. Okay, here's what the passage wants you to do. Trust God. Trust the Lord and believe that He alone is God and that He's raised up a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the passage wants you to do. Believe God and be confident in Him. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your faith. So when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, like we did today, and when we pray along with that first stanza and ransom captive Israel, when we pray like that, we're expressing our confidence for the future. A confidence that is rooted in God's faithfulness to us in His Son. What God spoke here in Isaiah 42, He has done in Jesus Christ, and it's through Christ that we, His weak and failing people, find our faith renewed. Trust Him, friends. And then like that great Christmas carol, Christmas carol says, Rejoice, rejoice, for the servant of the Lord has come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Our attempt to make You known is frail and weak and feeble. Help us, God. Please give us eyes to see the greatness and glory of Christ. Please give us hearts that are ready to believe and to receive by faith the truth of who You are in the Messiah. Father, we ask for grace to repent of our idolatry where we have trusted in things other than the Lord to save us. Lord, help us to be honest about our idols of this day, to confess and to repent and to look again to You and believe. 
Lord, please give us grace also to rejoice. This is good news that you have provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves. Lord, give us hearts that are ready to sing and to praise and to rejoice you, rejoice in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.